0: This is the Abraham's Wallet podcast. Abraham's Wallet spans the gap between the austerity of obedience to God and the prosperity rising from faithfulness. Run your home and your dough like a biblical boss.
1: Hey, Stephen. Hello, Mark. So we've been together this week on summer vacation, just spending some time by the lake, and... You brought your parents with you for the first half of this week. Well,
0: they met us here, but that's true. They were here. And
1: believe it or not, I've known you for 20 years, and I've never met them. So it was it was great to meet your family and get to know the, the mom and dad that raised you. Yep. One thing that stuck out to me when we were sitting around the dinner table together is that your dad is a man who tells stories and he's got some stories to tell. You
0: let him. He'll tell a story.
1: Yeah. He and he's not just a he's not just a spinner of tales. He's lived some life too. So his stories were colorfully told, but also there was some some meat on them to experiences that you just don't hear every day. Yeah. Especially nowadays. We didn't all ship off to war when we were no. 19. So I thought they were really interesting and I told you we ought to record these. So that's what we did. We recorded your dad telling stories. I'm glad you did. But before we dive into the stories of Roger Manuel, could you talk to us a little bit about what it was like growing up in a family where storytelling and stories were just a part of everyday life, and even maybe how you guys in your little family are integrating that into a a rhythm and a
0: practice? Sure. The kind of stories that we're going to be listening to here in a few minutes um, would be standard practice for my family whenever whenever we were with anybody, whenever there was a, an, an empty night. You know, I grew up in a time where you didn't have endless programs on demand. I grew. I mean, I remember when VCRs were new, so you just didn't have press a button and be entertained When we got together with family, and and my parents' closest friends were family, by the way. I've often thought about that, that their closest friends were my aunts and uncles. And so when we got together with family, it was pull out a hymn book, and we can sing some hymns together, and then everyone just sat down and played dominoes or cards, and there were just stories told. And they didn't mind hearing the same story over and over again. As a matter of fact, it kind of pulled heartstrings for everybody because there was a there was a collective story being told. They all grew up in poverty together in in the middle of Texas. My my dad actually grew up picking cotton in North Carolina, and then moved to Texas in his sort of teen years. And everyone in my extended family, his brothers and sisters. My mother's brother and sister all grew up in that same kind of rural um, poverty. Um, and that that was entertainment is to tell these stories and to hear the kind of collective story that was happening in our family was I didn't appreciate it at the time, but it was very um, centering. And so to hear my dad tell this kind of stories we're about to listen to is it just, it feels like home to me, number one. And I can also say these are the kinds of stories that we have him and my mom tell when they're around our children, because that ongoing story is really important for identity. It was for me, I I have lived in Ohio now for almost 20 years, but I still call myself a Texan because that's where, that's where my story is. That's where this identity is. And so on, on the wall of our living room, we have this huge wall where we have historical photos from both sides of the family. We go back as many generations as we possibly can. And we want our children to see this is the story of our family. Our, the story of our family is not whatever the latest car we've purchased is. It's not whatever movies we've seen lately. The story of our family is what's on the walls and these are the people and the the story that God is telling through our family. So we want our girls to be part of that story and that identity, and we know that they're going to carry that story on in their lifetime. So we really want these stories told and retold. So I'm very flattered that you wanted to record some of what my dad had to say.
1: And where do you think that we can make space in family rhythms as we are 25 to 45-year-old guys, for the most part, listening to this podcast, where are the places that maybe we could take a swing at integrating this practice of storytelling into our week? I'd have
0: two two answers to that. The first is the Sabbath meal. So when we get together at the Sabbath meal, this is the place for us to review history. This is the place for us to have this Tradition. This is a human tradition that's been going on for thousands and thousands of years, which is we tell the stories of our people. So we we, obviously we do that through the Bible. Anybody who reads the Bible with their family, you're retelling the story. So we we we've just been through Ruth as uh, as a family. And, you know, we're telling that story very slowly and we're pulling out the themes and we're talking, we're talking about what does it mean to flirt with this is what we're asking our girls. What does it mean to flirt with a man? Is there a godly way to flirt with a man? Is there an ungodly way to flirt? What did Ruth do? Let's just talk about the story. And you, and you pull out these themes and values, etc. So that's what the Sabbath meal is for us is a place to review these family stories. So for instance, A normal thing at a Sabbath meal would be to randomly pick one of the pictures off of our wall and talk about uh, great aunt uh, Esmeralda and go, what was the story of Esmeralda? And do you know that she was an immigrant and that she was she was a seamstress? That's all she knew how to do. But because she was a seamstress and was good at it, she got a job in the USA. She was, you know, we just review all of these stories. So that's my first one. The second one is just, such, it seems to me so untapped is when there are grandparents around, usually in the American model, the stars of the show, when, when the whole family's together, is whoever's the youngest. The little kids are the star of the show, and all the attention's on them. I think the, I think the more noble and godly practice is when the whole family's together, the stars of the show are the oldest people. And so we ought to be probing them, not only with advice, that we're getting advice real time in front of our children, but we're also probing them for these stories. I mean, we, we are constantly asking, Grandma, tell us about when you first received Jesus. We're having them tell that story. Yes, we're having them tell it over and over again, so much so that when the girls are 14 and 15, they should be nodding their heads going, we know we could quote this story. And maybe someday we'll say, good, quote it. Um, but we want to hear from Poppy and what are his stories? Tell us about what it was like when you first came to the Lord. What was it like when you first started saying no to alcohol? That's one of the stories that we're going to hear, etc. We 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 think that anytime there is a relative around, there's there's an opportunity to start courting those stories. So Stephen, why don't you introduce
1: us to your dad and then let's hear a, let's hear a story or two from okay. Mr. Manuel.
0: My dad was born in 1940. Uh, That means he's 79. Um, He's a very spry, athletic 79. He he always says he can't believe when he looks in the mirror that he says, I'm looking at an old man. He doesn't feel that way. He doesn't come across that way. He's really vivacious. He loves life. Um, He's a very friendly guy. He assumes everyone is his friend. Um, he's never had an enemy, and he's he loves to play games, and he's very gregarious, and so uh, you, we're going to hear a little bit about, I think I clarified this in the conversation, but um, we're going to hear stories from when he was uh, serving in Korea uh, out of school. You know, it was so common in his day for guys to be in the Army, and we're going to hear some things from stories from him that I think are really formative. They, they display character and they display, um, aggression from him in a good way. And so anyways, let's listen to some stories from my dad, Roger Manuel. Now mom, mom, weren't you telling us a story about when dad had his, bypass surgery what what happened
2: yes roger played tennis every single sunday afternoon and then another night of the week on league
0: i remember it well
2: a lot With of Jack tennis Shepherd. and he uh came home one
0: we would go to church on sunday morning we would go out to eat somewhere usually mexican or when money was lean we'd come home and dad would make oyster stew and milk Mm -hmm. and then it was he's out the door to play tennis. out
2: the door with this one same wonderful friend of his and he came home from league tennis one weekday night and he said i couldn't finish the set something's wrong and he never said that and so uh It happened a second time, I think. And then I said, well, won't you go to the doctor? And he said, yeah. So he went to the doctor and the doctor said, ah, it's nothing. And he came home and he said, the doctor said it was nothing, it's something. I know myself and I know something's wrong. So he went to another doctor and the doctor put him on the treadmill treadmill and said, we're going straight to the hospital and operating in the morning, you have a blockage. And they operated the next day. We called you, I think, I'm not sure where you were I was in England. England, ooh. And um, they operated, and um, he was uh, out of work from September to December. Did you go back to work in December, I think? Yeah. So that was really a great, we're so grateful. God, he knew that something was wrong, and God was was taking care of him. And they
0: zipped you open, Dad?
3: Yeah, it was it was kind of funny because uh, whenever they took me off the treadmill, he, told, uh, he said, uh, "Yeah, you've got you've got blockage, very bad." And so he said, uh, "He said, you know, you you don't have to have any kind of operation, but you'll have to limit all, everything you do." And I said, "That's not a that's not an option. What are my other options?" He said, well, the other options is we could, uh, we could just uh, do heart bypass surgery and uh, you know, after a while, you'll be able to do everything you've ever done. And I said, well, that sounds pretty good to me. And I said, "When, when can you do that? And he said, well, I just had a cancellation and said, uh, we could do it in the morning. And I said, a cancellation? He said, yes, yeah, somebody waited too long. And I said, can you do it this afternoon? <laughs> That's motivating. <laughs> and, and he said, no, but we'll do it first thing in the morning. So I went, uh, you know, I went Tech in the hospital and got in there and everything. So l- later on, after we got in there, about 7.30 or so, a well, nurse come in and said, I'm going to give you a shot. And I said, for what? And she said, well, it'll help you sleep. I said, I don't need any help. And she said, well, you know, people are worried about it. They, something might happen and everything. And I said, ma'am, I'm a Christian. And I said, if, if I don't make it through the night, I'll go straight to heaven and I'm not worried about that. And I said, but if, if, you, if you are worried about me having a good night's sleep, I said, I'll go to bed right after the news. And I said, if you'll come in after then, if I'm still awake, we'll talk about it. So to make a long story short, after the news, I turned over, and next thing I remember is in the morning, they were waking me up to pre-op, pre-op me, and when the when the lady came in before she went off, she said, I came in to check on you, but said, you were sound asleep as a baby. And I said, yes, ma'am, I went to bed, and. I said, my life was in my Savior's hands and I wasn't worried about it.
0: And what, what'd they say when they cracked you open? And what they say about the blockage?
3: The blockage was in the Widowmaker, the left descending artery. And uh, they they did, uh, took a uh, vein out of my chest and uh, did the inchworm around it. And that was in September of 95. Hmm. And I'm still alive and kicking, play golf two or three times a week, tennis a couple of times. Not as fast as I used to be, but don't bet against me.
0: Dad, why don't you tell Mark the story about the time that you you got caught trying to go pheasant hunting in Korea?
3: Oh, yeah. Well, I went over to Korea and I, uh, then in the Six Missile Battalion, Eighth Artillery to begin with, which is the old Lacrosse Missile. But then we got transferred up to Camp St. Barbara, which, which, just which for- was the second of Howard's Battalion, Seventy Six Artillery. Had our big, our own big compound, and uh, noticed, I mean, right away, every day that we were there in the evening, there'd be pheasants.
0: But just for context, this wasn't the Korean War. This was after
3: it was a police It was, it was a supposedly police. a police action. Yeah. Did get shot at it, though. But
0: we all were supposed to be uh, yeah, just maintaining the that's, area. That's
3: right. Just uh, d- 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 we're here, so don't try anything foolish. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, we had a, uh, noticed all those pheasants flying around and uh, had a warrant officer. I was a battalion ammunition officer, had a warrant officer who worked for me, and then I worked for a grizzly old captain, and we had a uh, another first lieutenant that was from Texas, and he was a hunter, too. So we all said, hey, you know, we need to start going pheasant hunting a little bit. We're gonna be over here for 13 months. So uh, I had my brother to break down my old A.J. Arbery shotguns and mail it to me in pieces, and then I put it together, and other guys got shotguns, and before they got there, well, we'd check shotguns out of the maximum security area and use those, but anyway... Uh,
0: but you're an old country boy. And I'm an old country boy from Iowa, Texas. Any, any piece of land, and you're going to find something to We're shoot or track down. We're find something to do. Space. You, did you have experience in Iowa, Texas uh, with pheasants?
3: No. No, we didn't have pheasants. We had... You know, we had uh, Bob White quail, and we didn't have turkey. Uh, we had a lot of doves, so yeah.
0: So, it was a curiosity for you at all, just to have these? Well, I'd interesting seen interesting pheasants. I'd
3: seen beautiful pheasants, and these were Chinese ringnecks, So they were they're absolutely gorgeous birds. But anyway, the uh, the warrant officer had a had a bird dog, believe it or not. I, I don't remember where he got it from or anything, but it was trained very well. He called him projo. And so uh, anyway, we started hunting around the camp there a little bit. And then, after we killed so many pheasants, well, we had them we'd clean them and and have them stored and all. And the idea was we were going to have a uh, an i Corps artillery officer's pheasant dinner one night. And so we started you know hunting different places. So uh, we would go down into villages and everywhere, and along uh, where where our sites were. And so one day we uh, we were all out there uh, pheasant hunting, went through a village, got a little further down uh, than than we normally get away from our camp. But anyway, we were easing through this big field and heading down toward the river, and all of a sudden we heard, Chonji Simba." which means stop in Korean. So we stopped and then then this Korean said, do not move in perfect English, said uh, you are in the middle of a minefield. And so of course we froze and uh, they come out there with a plat map showing where all the mines were and we had all walked by mines. And uh, anyway they, they let us out and said, "What are you doing in here? You're in the DMZ." And we said, "Oh gosh, we didn't know that. We came back through that village and all." And so he said, "How
0: deep into the minefield did you walked?
3: We had all walked by three or four mines. We were, we, you know, we were hunting, and the dog was going on. Fifty yards into the. Field. Well, I'd say at least we were fifty yards, yeah. But anyway, they they let us back out, and uh, the the. Uh, rock captain, Republic of Korean Army, said, we're going to have to report this. So they took our names, our, where we were from and, and everything. And so we said, uh-oh, we, we're in for it now. So anyway, two or three days later, uh, we were called into our colonel's office. Colonel said, uh, I understand you boys were down in the DMZ. And we said, yes, sir, you know, we, we, we're killing pheasants so we can have a, Officer, uh, pheasant dinner. It was he all said, for you, sir. <clears> he said, "No, oh, I'm not. I'm not arguing about that." He said, "But," said the uh, general of the uh, Army, Korean Army, "had called me and said he needed to talk to you." So he had all of us in there, and we said, "Yes, sir." So made an appointment, and the next day we went down to the general's office, walked in there, and saluted him and all, and he said, "At ease." So he said, "I understand you boys have been down in the DMZ, got off into a minefield, could have got yourselves blown up." In perfect English, by the way. And we said, "Yes, sir. We we didn't realize that's what we'd done." And he said, "Well, you know that was completely unauthorized and off limits." Yes, sir. Said we we we're sorry that happened and tell us what we need to do and we'll we'll do it. He said, "Well, I'm going to forgive you boys for doing that because I know y'all." Y'all didn't mean to, to do anything unauthorized, but he said, I'm gonna let you off on one condition. I said, yes, sir, what's that? He said, well, actually, I am a pheasant hunter. And he said, from now on, if y'all gonna go away from your compound, I want you to call my office, tell them where you're gonna go and when you're gonna go, and I'm gonna meet you there and we'll hunt together. So we said, "Yes, sir, you got it." Well, he hunted with us the rest of the time that he could, and whenever I got ready to leave Korea after you know my 13 months were up, I had decided that I had I had that AJ Aubrey shotgun with old hammers on it, but it's in excellent condition, and he had admired it. So, I uh, the last time we hunted, I said, uh, "General, I want you to have this." I want you to have this rifle. And he said, oh, no, I can't take that from you. I said, no, sir, it's a gift. I want you to have it. We, I appreciate everything you've done, and you've you've let us hunt places that nobody's ever hunted pheasants before because we had enough pheasants that we had that that uh, officer's mess. In fact, you were there with that, for that pheasant hunt. And he said, well, yeah, I really appreciate that. So anyway, he, he accepted the, the shotgun. So three days later... Uh, I I got the jeep, was down to Kempo Air Base where I was gonna catch the plane to go home and one of his officers stepped up and said, Lieutenant Manuel said.
0: You you, you were getting on the carrier or something and a jeep pulled up?
3: uh, We had left our compound and had gone down to Kempo Air Base to catch the airplane to leave Korea. My time was up and one of his aides stepped up to me and said, Lieutenant Manuel, the general sent you this little envelope and said, don't you open it until you're on the airplane leaving. And so I said, well, thank you very much. And you said, well,
0: it, it won't explode when I open it
3: up. Yeah. I said, it's, it's not a shotgun shell. So anyway, I stuck it in my pocket. And I was halfway to Japan before I realized, oh, I didn't open it. So anyway... I got the little envelope out, and it had a little note in there that said, thank you for all the good times we've had together. And I think the general's name was Hong. And uh, anyway, uh, inside was five $100 bills. And uh, that was, you know, I only made $222 a month. So, not so that was not chump change. 62. In 1962, and when I got home, I used that $500 to pay down on a Oldsmobile 98 luxury sedan. <laughs> it was only 800 bucks, so I only had to come up with $300. That's great. So anyway, uh, that was that was my story.
0: Dad, tell us about the time that you uh, were in the army, and you were. Uh, confronted in the bar with something you didn't want to do
3: oh well while while we were in uh right after i got over there uh i I went into korea okay we were at the officers club and i worked for captain gehring who who had been passed over several times because he was a rough tough type individual i think he'd probably been up and down the Officer, of the latter, but he was a captain; had been captain for years and years, and uh, we we had our own little compound, and uh, I think we probably had ten or twelve officers there. But we had some officers would come down from our corps artillery and and uh, paddle around with us. Well, we had a we had a young major, a uh, little short man, that uh, got promoted to major and he came in and said, Bartender, drinks for all the officers said, I want everybody have then have their mixed drinks, beer, whatever they want. And so we all bellied up to the bar. Well I, I never did drink, never had drunk at all. And I'd been there, you know, three or four or five months working for them and we'd always go up and throw darts and all and I'd always have a Coke. And uh, the rest of the guys drank. So anyway, this uh, when, when did you
0: despise them for drinking?
3: No, oh, no.
0: Did you ever judge them for no. well, their habits?
3: That, that's not me, no, no. no.
0: That's one of our kind of family identities is that we... No. Alcohol's never been part of our story. No, and... Because, and, and because my, it was part of your family's story. Yeah,
3: yeah. Uh, drinking is what broke up our family and caused the divorce in the family. So I just I determined that early on that I'd never drink. And uh, you, when, you you determined that as a kid? I determined that when I was about ten years old, and uh, and I never have drank. Father, I but but anyway, uh, this major you know come up there and everybody's coming up and and of course the bartender knew everybody there all all of us he was he was our local bartender and. As everybody stepped up, well he'd hand this guy a beer and this guy whatever he drank. So I'm standing I'm standing there with him and he put a Coke in front of me and this major said, Oh no, no, no. Said he's gonna drink he's gonna drink a beer with us tonight. And and I said, No, sir, I, I don't I don't I don't want a beer or everything but the Coke's fine with me. He said, No, Lieutenant, you're gonna drink a beer with us tonight. That- this was the major. About that time, this grizzly old captain, Captain Gary, stepped in between me and that major, and looked him in the eye and said, "Major, the boy just told you he don't drink. You or nobody else is going to force him to have a drink. You understand that?" And that major looked at that old grizzled captain and said, "Well, he didn't have it. He didn't just drink his coke." And and Captain Garing said, "You all right, son?" I said, "Yes, sir. Thank you very much." What
0: so, What did that mean to you?
3: It means that uh, he may have been passed over for a lot of things, but uh, in my eyes, he was he was a great great man. had a lot of character, and I was I was happy to serve under him.
0: Also, that you had you had earned the respect of your peers because you had made a you had made a personal stand for a while that consistently over time that wasn't about being haughty or anything it was just it
3: was was just just me who you were who i was they knew that i was a christian and and i didn't drink Uh, i i did have in in my hooch uh i had a a fifth of a quart of peach brandy when i got there there was the officer that was leaving said lieutenant i've got i had a little peach brandy here and said I don't drink but said that thing is really good if you get a bad cold or cough or something he said take a teaspoonful of that and put a little sugar in it I said that's what we used to do with turpentine believe it or not and so anyway he left me that that little half pint or whatever it was and I said and uh, you know when I left I I passed it on to the next guy that was coming for me and I said I'll bet you there wasn't Two or three ounces of it gone, and I was there 13 months. <laughs> so, but anyway, that's uh, that's it. That's